And that's called the holy hush. <laughs> Everyone talks, and then everybody just gets that feeling it's time to... That's it. All right, we are in the book of Mark this morning. We are picking up where we left off. If I would uh, ask you to embarrass yourself just a little bit, could you raise your hand if you were here last week for Bible class? So we have a majority. Okay, that counts. If you are online, that counts too. Uh, we went through the introduction of the book of Mark last week, and we got a whole whopping eight verses done into the first <laughs> chapter. Um, the introduction, the old line that I was taught was, if you properly introduce a book, it's half taught. I'm not sure if that's exactly accurate, but having an idea of what the book's all about, who the author is in relation to other people of the Bible, the time frame, the recipients, and so on. It's helpful to kind of keep things in context. If I uh, had a dollar for every time I said the word context, I wouldn't have to preach anymore, but here we are. And so the context of the book is very significant. I've got some extra credit questions for you to answer. Anyone that knows the answer, feel free to raise your hand. I'll call on you. Who is the author of the Gospel according to Mark? Mark, yeah, right. Does he have a first name? John, also called Mark, because a whole bunch of Johns, right? So you got to differentiate, uh, differentiate those uh, names from each other. Uh, we think that he loosely followed the teachings of a certain apostle and wrote them down and thus compiled the book of Mark. Who is that apostle? Peter. Peter, all right. He is the cousin of which important Acts character or person? Barnabas. Barnabas, right? Okay, that's from Philemon, ironically, or Colossians 4. 12, something around there. Um, let's see, what, what were his main uh, audience members? Who was he writing to? Or to whom was he writing? Gentiles, Gentiles yeah, of a certain city, we think. Romans. Romans, right? We know that because he uses Latin. 
more often than not, and he does not use the Aramaic. He explains or translates the Aramaic because no one in Rome knows what Aramaic is, right? It's like going to New York City and talking about Southern cooking. You don't really know what that is, <laughs> right? If you don't drop your G's and your R's and you're missing something, right? So uh, that's the idea of what this book's all about. Uh, we begin it. Let's just go back to the beginning here in which it says, the beginning of the gospel, the word gospel means what? Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we already know from the very first sentence that he ever wrote of the gospel according to Mark that he believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that was good news, right? So that's a very important thing to begin with in contrast to what Matthew and Luke uh, do in their first opening section. They go through a genealogy because Luke is just kind of built that way, and Matthew is a Jew, so he wanted to have the Jewish readers uh, recognize that he was the Messiah before he uncovers, oh, he's the Messiah, right? So they kind of had that lineage. Uh, so we talked about verses 1 through 8 last week before we closed out due to time, and we were introduced to a guy named John. This is not the Apostle John, and um, it's not the other John or the third John. It is John the Immerser, or Baptizer, or Baptist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the word baptism, of course, doesn't mean immersion, technically. To sink, to dip, to plunge, right? They would use it in the Greek uh, language to talk about a ship that was engaged in combat with another ship, and one would be sunk. It would be literally baptizo. So you have the immersion idea historically from that context. So you have John the Baptist. He is preparing the way for the Son of God. Uh, beginning in verse 4, it kind of gives some idea where we were last week. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Technical question for you. If you were baptized under John's baptism, did you achieve remission of sins? No. No, why not? Okay, there was no Messiah yet. There's no propitiation yet, right? So Christ had not yet come. But it was a baptism for or unto, you might say, kind of preparing the way for forgiveness of sins. Uh, a more technical answer would be found later in the book of Acts when you got Paul rolling through town following Apollos, and Apollos only knew John's baptism, which is an interesting thought. This guy, Apollos, he was eloquent, right, educated. He heard John's preaching and then just took that message and went all over modern-day Turkey and preached it, which is interesting. It wasn't just a local issue. It was a worldwide issue in Apollo's eyes anyway. So Paul went to town. They say, have you had the Holy Spirit since you've been baptized? They go, what Holy Spirit, right? And they go, uh, into what then were you baptized if you don't know there's a Holy Spirit? He goes, well, John's baptism. And Paul kind of wasn't present during that time, so he's like, well, let's baptize you, and you have the gift. There you go. That's all the issue. Okay, verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. A little bit of hyperbole. Is that a word you all familiar with? Hyperbole, so how I said it for years before I had someone actually say it correctly. Um, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, not all, but it's a major event is the idea uh, from the literature here. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So what did that indicate to us last week? Nazarite, yeah. It's tricky to prove that, though. I, I know um, Trey mentioned that, I think it was, last week. Uh, but it's hard to really prove that John was a Nazarite per se. Um, 
but that's but yeah, but we're on the right track. Somebody else wore camel's hair and had a leather belt or mantle. Elijah. Elijah. All right, Malachi three. You got a prophecy. Elijah's going to come. Um, man, that's that's him. Not literally, right? But it's figuratively someone like Elijah. Okay, verse seven. He preached, saying, "After me." comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. It's a bit humil uh, show of humility there. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Is that true? Yeah. It's an interesting technicality there. We'll get there when we get to it. Uh, so he's talking about whom? John's talking about Jesus coming after him. Okay, well, here we are. Verse 9. There's Jesus, right? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So you're going to get the picture real quick. Your mind maybe want to insert some details from Matthew or Luke, because I know my brain does that. I have all of basically Matthew's gospel in my head when I'm reading Mark. So for my purposes and for what we're trying to do together, is we're trying to flush all that knowledge, right? We're trying to act like we've just got this fresh copy of papyrus in front of us, and we're reading in Koine Greek, which is always fun, tell you. And then you are reading Mark as a new convert, a new Christian in the first century, right? That's our kind of exercise to try to see what you would learn about Jesus from looking at just Mark, likely one of the first gospels written, if not the first. Uh, so you've got Jesus coming from Nazareth of Galilee. So Galilee is kind of a region. Nazareth is one of those towns in that region. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. What's the Jordan? A dirty river. I mean, I guess. I mean, comparatively. Have you all seen the Mississippi River before? Yeah. So I moved from Virginia where we have Chesapeake Bay, and you've got the Atlantic Ocean, you've got all kinds of rivers, and it's all pretty beautiful. I learned after I moved away from there. I went to Memphis, and I saw the river. Uh, I was not impressed. <laughs> it was just a bunch of mud. And I'm like, that's the Mississippi River? Like, really? Uh, yeah, it's mighty, all right. Mighty dirty. Um, so anyway, in the Jordan... Okay, when he came up out of the water, again, just to kind of reemphasize all the things that we reemphasize, uh, that implies he went down into the water and then came up out of the water, right? Y'all know when the idea of pouring or sprinkling came into, into existence, really, officially? The idea of sprinkling or pouring for baptism instead of immersion? No. Uh, yes, it was a Catholic doctrine. They had to have some. Was the Pope, or the King rather, of Italy, um, get baptized on his deathbed? And he couldn't get up out of the bed because it's his deathbed. You don't really get up from that too much, right? And so the the idea of pouring water on the head as convenience, and then they said, well, it's good enough for him. It's good enough for everybody else. So that was eighty six hundred. Uh, so we're still fighting against the idea of this. Uh, today, when it comes to were you baptized, the person says yes, and they don't really mean what we mean, right? So you wanted to find your terms a little bit. So, okay, moving on to verse 10, part B. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. So let's kind of jump back here a little bit. We're going to be doing some word chasing. So you see the word he there. Who's the he in this context? Jesus. 
Heard answers. Jesus came out of the water. He saw who was in the water. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. There you go. There we go. So that's, that's a small little trick to use. You see the he there. You don't want to immediately assume it's someone that you think it is. You want to trace that he back to the proper article there, and you've got Jesus. So Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Was the spirit a dove? I think it was. Some, you know, my husband thinks it's bigger, though, but I, I thought it was really in the flesh a dove. Like, I know, but in Matthew, it doesn't. It does. Oh. Yeah. That's yeah. a good argument. Says it in, That's a good thought, but it's not true. Sorry, <laughs> I know you're sure we're broken and everything, but I'm not going to be easy on you. Um, so, yeah, the, like a dove in the form of a dove is what Matthew says technically there. So it looked kind of like a dove, right? You've seen a dove before, haven't you? Sir? Seems that uh, word he mm -hmm. uh, could have been word in uppercase. Yeah, it could have been. But it was. Well, depends on what translation you have. Now, the ESV doesn't capitalize any of the letters, which is their choice to be able to say they're not biased when it comes to talking about deity. It's an interesting argument to present. Uh, King James, New King James, they have to capitalize he or him for talking about the Lord, right? ESV does not do that. I don't personally like that too much, but I understand where they're coming from. If you're translating it and you've got the wrong article and you're not too sure if it's talking about John or Jesus, you don't capitalize him talking about John. So they were trying to say they're unbiased in that way. It's an interesting debate. Um, you know, it wasn't capitalized. Well, that's a trick question. That's not nice of you. Um, were the original manuscripts on papyrus in Koine Greek, were they capitalized? Yes. Yes. But they were in all caps. <laughs> so that's kind of a trick question, right? So unseal letters is how it's said. They're all Greek letters that are all the capital versions of it. There's no spaces. There's no punctuation. There's no breaks. You look at unseal and you just look at a bunch of Greek letters. And you have to figure out what those words are and when the word breaks and so on. And so if you've got, let's say, 10 different copies of that, and you have some ones that are a bit smudgy, some that are falling apart, some that are just fragments, it's difficult to kind of piece those together. But we have, of course, more than enough uh, to prove that we have the actual text. A lot more to say about that, but not right now. Okay. Yeah. It says, he doesn't indicate that anybody else saw or heard. One According would, to Mark, what one, would you would think? Think, one would think, you know, the crowd that allegedly was there in another. I'm just throwing that out there. Yep. You throw that. Out From there. Mark, it looks like Jesus saw it, but Mark's writing about it like everybody saw it. He's talking about what Jesus saw. Interesting thought. Okay, in a voice from heaven. All right, now it's time for the heaven conversation. You all ready? My favorite conversation to have. It's super, super easy, but it's very important to know when you read the word heaven. So if I say heaven to you, what do you think of? Sky. What? Sky. The sky? Okay. If I say heaven to you, what do you think of? Paradise. Home. Paradise. Home. Okay. Say heaven. What do you think? Home of God. Home of God. Okay. Paradise. 
I say heaven, there's, there's four right answers, so I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the all four. Y'all ready? Heaven. Stars. Stars. She's cheating because she's heard me preach for 15 years. <laughs> all right. In the Hebrew uh, tradition, that is, is not Hebrew text, but Hebrew tradition, when you say heavens, you mean up, basically. You go up on a mountain to get closer to heaven, whatever that means. So you have the heaven where the birds fly, which is the sky or the air or the clouds are just up, right? The blue part, usually. Uh, you have heaven talking about the heavens being crafted, talking about stars and planets and, and solar system, etc. You have heaven, meaning the throne room of God right now, where God exists in this moment. See Isaiah 3 for more details about what that looks like. It's pretty wild and freaked Isaiah out for a bit. And then you have heaven, meaning the eternal home paradise place that we're all looking forward to going to one day, right? So when you see the word heaven, you probably need to use the context to figure out which one we're talking about. So a voice from heaven. We're we talking about the eternal paradise of God awaiting all of us? No, it's not thought in the context at all. If you have the word heaven, meaning just the stars, like, uh, I think it's talking about the idea of heaven being just up where the sky is, where the birds are, right? So that's just my short little conversation about heaven. All with me? Okay. A voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, again indicates to us the individual, that is the he in this text is talking about Jesus, right? Now, contrast that with the transfiguration in Matthew and Luke, and you have some interesting connections to make. Okay, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. What is the Spirit here in this context? Holy Spirit, right? That make a whole lot of sense, right? You just had him talked about here in verse 10, right? The uh, dissension like a dove of the Holy Spirit upon Christ. Um, was he... God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, before his baptism. Yes, he was with God in the beginning. This is why I wanted to do Mark with you guys. What was the question? Was Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, God with us, before his baptism? Yeah, he was always there. Yeah. Okay, there is a doctrine that's out there, which is uh, not what I subscribe to, to be perfectly clear, that he did not become the Messiah or qualified to be the Messiah until his baptism because he didn't have the Holy Spirit before. Interesting thought, for sure. Got some major theological implications, though. Like when you see him as a boy around 12, I think it was, in the temple. Is he 12? Yeah. yeah. Interesting thought there as well. So, yeah, he was the Messiah, right? If he wasn't, then he could have not been sinful before the baptism and still be qualified to be our lamb. So we have an interesting theological complication there if you subscribe to that. But interesting thought at, at the very least. Okay, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I don't know about you, but my Matthew alarm is going off in my head saying, what about Matthew 4? All the details. Mark doesn't have any of them. So why do we have four gospel accounts? Wouldn't just like Matthew be enough? 
Okay. Ma'am? I think it has to do with the person too, like Luke being a physician. He could, especially about crucifixion, he does more of the physical. Okay. So I think it was that person's perspective and what they already knew. Okay. Unless it's a question, I don't know if you all well enough to ask it and just make a statement. Does anyone here not have two working eyes? I'm not joking. Anyone missing an eye, got a glass eye? Blind in one eye. Nobody. Have you ever closed one eye and tried to drive before? So one time, <laughs> one time, I was driving in Charleston, and I had something in my right eye, which is my favorite eye. My left part of my body does not work. I can't use this hand for anything. Left eye, not that strong. Left ear, I, it's there, but I mean, I can't really tell. So my right eye is my favorite eye. When I had something in my eyeball, it was a hair or it was a, something was in there and irritating it. And so I was driving around Charleston trying to get this thing out of my eye, doing probably not fast enough to be in trouble, but still fast enough to be in trouble. And so you've got something in my eye. I'm looking around, and I have a really hard time making turns doing this. Can you imagine? Yeah. So if you only have one eye, you're lacking some depth perception. That's the main issue, right? And so if you got two eyes, you have pretty good depth perception. You can tell how, way, how far away things are based on the distance between these two eyes. Imagine having four of them. First of all, you look pretty funny, right, if you had four eyes. And not a derogatory glasses joke in here. But the more vision you have of something, the, the better your depth perception. So in my mind, to make it simple enough for me to understand why are there four gospel accounts, yes, Different authors had different emphases. They had different uh, backgrounds, like Luke was a physician, for example. Matthew was a Jew. And so you've got these different uh, things they bring to the table by being inspired to write these books. But by having four of them, you have these things that overlap and things that are omitted and things that are not covered. So you have a different um, way of building this, this case that he is the Messiah, and all four of them do. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You have the synoptic gospels. They all see things the same way. And then you got John. I think John's my favorite because he got older in life and just kind of went his own direction, it seems. Like he would just talk about things. Like uh, we begin talking in Mark about the life of Christ at what point? Well, this is talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son, the Son of God. And then there's a guy named John. Right, Matthew, here's the genealogy about where this guy came from, and then, of course, here's some uh, small details about his personal life, and then uh, here's John. And then you got Luke, a bit more detail, some genealogy, a, a little bit in there. you got some birth stuff in there as well, and then you've got, here's John. And then John, the apostle, writes, in the beginning was the word. So we're going to Genesis 1-1. Like, okay, all right, John, all right, slow your roll. Okay, so you've got this, lacking the details that we know that are in Matthew and Luke, for example. So Mark is just getting to the point, it seems. Any questions, comments? Well, maybe some of them didn't even know some of the stuff the others knew. Well, they wouldn't. Right, so they're, they're just saying, what I've heard is this. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I like to pretend like it was Peter. And just say, here's what Peter told me about John, or about Jesus, in this case, right? Well, how do we know that? We might 
in its entirety is inspired by God. And the different people that wrote it, okay, so there's a little personal slant to it, which mm -hmm. is, it's all going to come out the same in the end. Right. And Mark is doing the Reader's Digest condensed version, yeah. which, you know, a lot of us <laughs> appreciate. The important I know what Reader's Digest version is, by the way. <laughs> I'm dating myself. I'm aware of what that publication wants. You better watch it. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. I say cliff notes. You know what cliff notes are? Yes. That's good. I say it enough that you should know what that is. If you're younger than me, like, well, I just Google it. Wikipedia has got everything on it. Like, oh, yeah. To have internet in high school. Um, yes. So, small exercise for you to think about. About the idea of it being inspired, but it all comes out in the end. I want to write a novel with you. Okay? I'm going to write a novel. This is made up, but we're going to make it a novel. Okay? I want to start with chapter one. Let's do a book about um, a missing person, right? A missing person's story, let's say. I'll do chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, and we're going to go around the room and each of you get a chapter. It's going to be a long book, right? If I just take what I have about a missing person and combine it with all the chapters that you supply, how well do you think that book's going to read? It might be interesting, but it's going to be a little choppy in between the scenes. Let's read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and just see how it flows so well together. If you try to insert the Epistle of Barnabas, by the way, in any of that section, it's going to feel, uh, something's a little bit off here about this. Or the Gospel according to Thomas or Peter, it's going to seem a little bit, the words aren't quite the same, the text is not quite the same, the doctrine's not quite the same. But if you just read the Scriptures, you don't find inconsistencies. You see some questions that may be, may be raised, but you don't have major theological movements over one book to another. If you read Romans and Galatians, it's the same book. One's just a bit more wordy, right? One's a bit deeper, higher, you might say, in its writing style. And Galatians is a little bit simpler, right? Justification. How does that take place? How does that work? Same author, different audience, different length, different depth to it. And so my point is, when you read through Genesis all the way to Revelation, when you read the whole complete book, it's got this feel to it, right? An energy behind it where it seems like there's some kind of force maybe behind all the authors of those books. Does that make sense? If I were to write a chapter of my own wording choice and my own mind, my own thoughts versus all of y'all's, it's going to be different. So to me, that seems a very compelling reason to look at scriptures as inspired. There's a whole other way to define that and explain that and prove it, in fact, but that's, that's the one that makes the most sense to me. Does that make sense to you at all? Okay. Uh, have you read the Book of Mormon before? The Book of Mormon? I read parts of it. Just parts? Okay. It's an interesting book. <laughs> well, you know, when you got a 12-year-old author, you know. Yeah, it sure is. But when you read it, though, it has some of the same word choices that the Bible has, right? But it feels different. 
there's a different pull to it. It doesn't quite mesh what we've already been reading for all these years. Uh, if you count the, and it came to pass in the first chapter alone, they're trying to use that Bible language, but it's not quite the same. So not trying to say anything, you know, beyond the fact that when you read it, it's got this feel, and Mark's got that feel to it for sure, but it is the Reader's Digest or Cliff Notes version of what we know from Matthew and Luke that we're not supposed to remember for this class. Okay? All right. Now, after John was arrested, well, that happened real quick, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or the good news. Whose message was that? John? Where'd John get it? God, okay. It's interesting to see that when John's no longer in the picture, the message, especially at first, that Jesus was preaching was John's message. So what was John's mission again? Prepare. To prepare the way. Interesting choice of words, if you know the book of Acts at all, because they were people of the persuasion of the way, right? So he's preparing the way, literally, for Jesus, and Jesus keeps preparing the way for the new message that's coming that's not quite here yet. So... The time is fulfilled, so now it's time. The kingdom of God is at hand. What in the world is that? According to Mark. I heard the church. Would you learn that yet from Mark? You just haven't You would know that yet. So what I think Mark is doing here is prepping that stage for an introduction to what the kingdom of God truly is. If you were a Jew living in the first century and you heard the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the good news, what would you be thinking? Messiah? Her king. What did the people assume was going to take place when Jesus came? He's, he's the new David. I mean, we have the prophecy. He's going to go up there and kick Rome out, get rid of Herod, take back Jerusalem. It's a victory story for Israel at last. The remnant were faithful until the end, and now we got King David back. By the way, when King David was in charge, it wasn't that great either. It was okay. There was a little bit of peace with the Philistines for a little while, and then David and Bathsheba made some mistakes, and there was some strife in the household, you might say. right? And so it wasn't perfect. And yet this king was supposed to be perfect. Um, so that's, that's what they're thinking, no doubt, at the time. If you're in Rome, you probably don't have that on your mind at all. But that's why it's not emphasized too hard here in Mark, I believe. Yep. Going back to what we were talking about, uh, the message Jesus gave, mm -hmm. being John the Baptist. Well, they, he had a great many followers. And I would think perhaps Jesus would want to appeal to them first. Hey... This is flowing with John the Baptist's message. Right. You believed him, believe me. Yeah. Um, he would pull a lot of his apostles from John's disciples, right. which is interesting. Um, and then you have the whole dichotomy, the whole breakdown of you got Jesus as a center point, right? And then you've got the apostles later to be named and mentioned as the special ones that would be sent out. 
got 12 minus one towards the end, right? And then plus one, then plus another one. So you got, what, 14, 15 apostles? And then you've got the followers, not just the uh, people that were apostles, but the folks that were following him around. And then you have the crowds, where the folks are not really following him, but they're interested enough to go seek him out in public arenas. And then you've got the religious rulers that pop up, mostly Pharisees, some Sadducees, some scribes. Uh, what are the scribes, by the way? You hear a lot of mumbling. I can't hear. I'm sorry. They write off everything. They write everything, yeah. but for who? For the Jews, for the uh, Sanhedrin. Yeah, that's it. So they are scribes or lawyers for the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Jerusalem, right? That's that's the main three working pieces there for religious leaders that did not get along with Christ at that well, to say the least. Uh, then you got the people on the outside. So you got people like Herod, he's kind of a Jew, but not really, he wants power. You got his son or grandson, he's kind of the same way. You got Pontius Pilate, who's technically over this whole little area that has a whole big, you know, hoopla all over this, this carpenter guy. And then you've got everybody on the outside that's kind of looking in and seeing what's going on. The folks that don't know, the Gentiles that are around, Samaritans that see things but don't really see things clearly. So it's a complex, layered environment, as it was in the first century. We are. Have you ever seen the show The Chosen? Yes. If you have, raise your hand for me. Okay. You should all watch it. It's free. There's a mobile app on your phone. Just look up The Chosen, and you can watch them all for free. It's a dramatization of the life of Jesus, and they take their time with it, which is really interesting. There's a bunch of stuff added, of course, for sake of story and flavor for a television show, but it's really, really good. Um, I remember crying... When I watched The Passion of the Christ for the first time, after becoming a new convert, which is, don't recommend that. <laughs> it's a bit much too, too soon. Um, and then there was one episode here where he calls a, a disciple, and I just lost it, just bawled my eyes out, because it was just like, oh, yeah, that's, these are real people. Uh, they're not just characters, not just people I've talked about. These are living people with problems and issues, and they were doing things, and then Jesus shows up and pulls them from their life to go be fishers of men, and that, to me, made a huge impact. Speaking of which, verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. You got Simon and Andrew here, huh? Okay. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you I will make you become, that's a weird phraseology, fishers of men. And immediately they, le they left their nets and followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Uh, hired servants meaning what, by the way? Employees. Employees. Like, work, work. They were hired. Yeah. So they were servants. Right. That's the idea. Um, so you've got here Simon and Andrew. Simon would be renamed a little bit later on, right? Simon what? Hardhead, Peter. And Andrew, his brother, cast, casting a net into the sea. So Peter, Andrew, casting the net. Uh, verse 19, James and John mending their nets. 
Interestingly, when you look at how they worked in the first century in the book of Acts, you see Peter, usually, and then Andrew are the ones proclaiming the message, and then you've got James and John, and they're kind of in the background taking care of stuff. So I'm not sure that's what Mark's implied, but it's an interesting little coincidence here. Some are casting, some are mending, so you're reaching out or then helping those that are already in, kind of an idea. Uh, interesting little thought there. Questions, comments? Wonder how you know they just immediately followed. They left everything and followed. Did were they cousins or something? Did they know Jesus ahead of time? Because I mean, who would just drop it all and go? I'm sure that dad of Zebedee didn't like it a bit. I mean, really think about that. He's probably pretty aggravated with this boys. Well, there was this one guy, and uh, God told him to leave his father's house. You know, leave his friends, you know, leave his family, and go to a place that God would show him. And then he went to talk to his wife. I said, hey, babe. Uh, so, you know God, right? Well, he talked to me today, and he told me we're supposed to move away from everything we know and love and just go to a place. Oh, great, where is it? I don't know yet, but he's going to show us along the way. And Abraham eventually went. And so did Sarah, which blows my mind. I mean, can you imagine me going over to Melissa and saying, hey, babe, great news. Uh, God told me we're supposed to move. Well, let's pack it up again and go out of town. No, it's, it's wild, right? So here you've got God, Jesus, walking over to these guys and saying, hey, follow me. And they did. And if they didn't, we wouldn't be here. If you think about it. But hadn't Jesus been teaching and preaching and doing other things along the way? I mean, Not according to Mark. What? Not according to Mark. So here, here's what we're doing, right? We're, we're seeing Mark. He is hitting these notes, but he's not lingering, right? There is no extra fluff here. He is getting the gospel out to people that want to know about it, it would seem. So he's like, yep, there was John, and then there was Jesus, and then John's gone, and Christ is here, and now he's getting a following. So we are moving through the, the story at a pace to keep the attention of the Roman world, it would seem. But yes, historically, according to Matthew, according to John, according to Luke, he would have been much more well-known than Mark would have it appear from his reading. So these guys heard him teach and probably seen him heal, and Zebedee probably knew something about Jesus, and mm -hmm. he wasn't a stranger just coming and saying, hey, come on, let's go. Yeah, yeah, Andrew is a follower of John, right? Matthew's account. He goes and tells Peter. So yeah, there's more information behind the scenes here, but Mark is moving through the story. Well, that's one thing I find in certain scriptures in the Bible. We don't need to know the background. We find it odd, strange, we mm -hmm. can sort of figure it out, but the fact is, this is what happened. Thank you, God, here we go. Yeah. Uh, that was Mark's take. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not a lingerer. I just wish I had way more. <laughs> you know, I just got so many questions, and I see descriptions, and I'm like, what in the world? A wheel within a wheel going on? What, what is happening here? Like, I want to see it, you know? Uh, all of a sudden, his form was transfigured on the mountain. What? What, what are you talking about? His clothes were whiter than any launderer could make them. Like, what are you talking about, man? Like, I've seen a white shirt before, but 
Anyway. Okay. They went into Capernaum. When do I stop? I got a bell. I got a bell. Okay. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Okay. Here we go. Goes to Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath, which is what? Seventh day. We'd call it Saturday, right? What was, what was important for the Jews about that day? No work, day of rest. Okay, all right, all right, we're on the same page. Entered the synagogue. What's the synagogue? Okay. We think its origins are in Ezekiel. When they were away from Jerusalem, they still wanted to show devotion and do things and praise God, and for lack of a better word, but they couldn't do it in the temple because temples, mm, not in the best shape, and they're away from Jerusalem, right? So we think that if they got seven families together with uh, patriarchs, they could establish this little synagogue where they'd go and they would sing hymns or uh, chant the Psalms, we would say. They would read from the Torah, the law, and then you've got people that are giving towards the expenses of the upkeep of the synagogue to buy scrolls and so on. And then you have someone proclaiming a message from the Torah and explaining what it was using their Hebrew Bible. And to do that for authority, you would sit down to read the scripture and explain it. And so does this sound kind of similar to our, the church? What we do? Weird, right? It's almost like the first century Christians were a part of a synagogue and they become Christians and they made the church kind of work like a synagogue did. Interesting little connection there. Nothing really implies uh, that, but it's an interesting connection. Okay. Um, and was teaching. Verse 22, And they were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So we get that, if you remember the book we can't mention, Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? So we have a whole lot of skipping that we're going on through Mark here. But he's teaching them, and they're astonished that he talks like he has authority. Well, why is he teaching that way? You got God in front of you in human form. He's like, you guys want to hear about God? Well, it's your lucky day. <laughs> you got the right guy in your synagogue the Sabbath day. So he's like, yeah, I was there for all this stuff. I mean, he's reading the Torah. And he was there for all that stuff, which, you know, again, I want more. I want more. It's enough, but I want more. Um, I always say I have all these questions I'm going to ask God when I get to heaven, and I probably won't care enough at that point by seeing, like, oh, God's here. Uh, I'm good. Like, I don't need anything else. Uh, but details. Um, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Immediately. 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 Get the point? Mark is moving through this text immediately. All right. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <sighs> Guys. I mean, I don't understand how some people can't look at this and get excited. Because this is a wild story. Here is Jesus. He's got his first followers. He's in the synagogue talking about himself in a way to all the people that are there. They're all like, who is this guy? Right? 
And then all of a sudden, a dude with a demon walks in and says, I know who you are. Why are you here? Are you here for us? You're the Holy One of God. So what's Jesus do? Verse 25, he rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. What? Like, he's just teaching. And here's this demon guy walking in. He casts out the demon. The guy drops to the floor, convulsing all over the place. Demon comes out with a loud voice. I mean, that's just a normal Sunday church, right? I mean, that's just a regular Saturday Sabbath with Jesus in your midst. I had never thought about it before, but if this guy just came, came in, if anybody else could tell that he had an unclean spirit in him. If he just walked in and he's talking and he's saying, I know who you are. I wonder if the rest of the people there knew that there was an unclean spirit or if he came in acting normal and accepted Jesus called him out. I mean, he could have started up a lot of trouble. I've got a lot of questions. There are no answers. I've got the text in front of me. I remember the very, one of the last days of my preaching school, uh, our director walked in and goes, uh, boys, you're about to go out there and be a full-time preacher somewhere. Most of you anyway. He goes, uh, I want you to be aware of something. You're going to be a nut magnet. You know what it's kind of like, what did he say? You're going to be a nut magnet. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, crazy people are going to search you out. You are going to be in the building one day and you think you're alone. You're not going to be alone. Someone got that back door open and they are in your building now. Just be aware that you are responsible to be a good steward of God's stuff. And so to say that Jesus had some crazy people lingering around, I mean, he could have been normal. He could have been acting a little strange, um, but he took care of the problem real quick. So again, I don't know. Good question though. All right, folks, we're out of time. Thank you for your attention. We'll pick up here next week, Lord willing. And uh, if you want to keep on reading through the text and kind of see where we're going, that would be helpful to you, I think. I appreciate your time.